0: The French Who Love Them Some Buster programmed this really, really excellent festival of all his silence, um, you know, the shorts and the features, all of his independently produced silence. And so I just went to everything in this festival and some things I went back several times, and you know, there was just this sense of wonderment, like what? This has existed my whole life and since before I was born and, and I never knew about it.
1: Out of the silver shadows and into the klieg Lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebbert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film brought to you by nitrateville.com the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world slapstick that defined a century i talked to slate movie critic dana stevens about her new book on the cultural meaning of the great stone face buster keaton plus writer farron smith neme on a retrospective devoted to early talkie dames and filmmaker Glenn Andreev on his upcoming documentary on Lost Films That Got Saved. Generally speaking, if you enjoy our hospitality here, give us a chance, or seven of them. Leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts, and subscribe there or wherever you get your podcasts, you saphead! Who was this solemn, beautiful, perpetually airborne man? From what alternate universe, seemingly possessed of its own post-Newtonian laws of physics, had he been flung? How did he pull off such boggling feats of acrobatic prowess and comic invention? And what became of him after he sailed out of the frame? How could anyone be at once so physically agile, so right on in his directorial instincts, and so timelessly funny. That's Dana Stevens at the start of her new book on Buster Keaton, Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the Twentieth Century, from Atria Books. It gets at something many of us feel, that there's something uniquely sublime, maybe supernatural, about Keaton's harmony with the universe in his best films. But as Stevens tells the story, as otherworldly as he can be, there's also something very much of the times he lived in about his communion with a machine, the movie camera, just a couple of decades old when he started playing with it, and how Keaton's work and life seemed to embody modernity in the new century. Dana Stevens is the movie reviewer for Slate, and a regular contributor to its Culture Gabfest podcast. I spoke to her from New York, And we started by talking about when she first encountered Keaton on film.
0: You know, I talk about this in the introduction to the book, so it's on the first three pages of the book if you want to hear an extended version of this story. But I discovered Keaton relatively late for someone who is as much of a film nerd as I have been ever since teenage years. But it's important to note that during my teenage years... There was no streaming, of course. There was also, there were there a were few VHSs even in video stores and things like that were sort of just getting started. And so in order to see silent comedy or silent film of any kind, you really had to see it projected on a big screen. And in San Antonio, Texas, where I grew up, there were there were a couple of repertory theaters, but there was not a lot of silence being shown. I mean, maybe once a year you could see a Charlie Chaplin or something, but I doubt I had ever seen a silent film on the big screen by the time I discovered Keaton, which was when I was in my 20s. I was in grad school and I was studying in France for the year. I was not studying film, I was studying literature, uh, but it so happened that I was there during the centenary of Keaton's birth, which was, he was born in 1895. I was there 95, 96, that school year. And the French who loved them some Buster programmed this really, really excellent festival of all his silence, um, you know, the shorts and the features, all of his independently produced silence. And some of them played several times. It was a really well curated festival at a little theater that was right near my house. Uh, I had a student card that made it very cheap to get in. And so I just went to everything in this festival and some things I went back several times. And you know, there was just this sense of wonderment, like what, this has existed my whole life and since before I was born and, and I never knew about it. And I just had to understand who this person was that was capable of those stunts and those gags and just the camera placement and the imagination that went into the sets and all of it. And there also so happened to be, because the French are the French, a really excellent little library connected with this this Cinematheque that I saw the films at, that was in the basement. And so I started to go there, blow off my dissertation that I was supposed to be writing, and just read everything I could get my hands on about Keaton, which was mainly American biographies translated into French, which <laughs> was sort of my first c- context of, of reading about his life. And of course, as you know, if you've read about it at all, his life is fascinating. I mean, even the Wiki- Wikipedia page on him is full of incredible stories. You can't relate his life and not have an interesting story in there somewhere. But more and more as I started to read about him and to watch other, you know, related silent films and to expand my knowledge of that period, I started to feel like I just just still don't get him in his context. I still don't get what historical forces kind of formed this um, this entertainer, you know, and, and, and what in turn he brought to the 20th century, you know, that he was he was growing up in. And the fact that he was born in 1895, the same year that film was projected by the Lumiere brothers in France has been noted in many of his biographies. Like It's hard not to note that fact because it's a really remarkable convergence. But I felt like it had never been spun out completely because to be born as- alongside the movies also means that he grew up alongside the movies. And he, we, of course, watched them as a child growing up as a vaudeville performer. There would always have been a movie on the bill, at least one, to, for him to watch along with performing. And, you know, as his career developed, the cinema industry was developing. And so that's something that I try to trace in the book.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the book is, not exactly a biography, although it follows his life pretty chronologically what what are you what were you getting at with this book?
0: yeah, the form the format is unusual, and people should know that if they're thinking of buying this book. I keep seeing it being advertised and talked about as the new biography of Buster Keaton. and I'm not going to say it's not a biography. I'm certainly happy for it to be shelved with biography or reviewed as a biography if that helps people to see it. but it's not a comprehensive biography. There's one of those that's about to come out in February by James Curtis, which I haven't read yet, You know, like a big doorstopper, 800 um, something page biography of Keaton where you really can learn like what he was doing in every week long interval his, of his life. Uh, but this is more of a cultural history and it is specifically, here's what my elevator pitch would be. It's a cultural history of his lifespan, right? So he was born in 1895 and he dies in 1966. And if you think about those 70 years and how much changed in the world and in the country and in entertainment and just everywhere in in the years between the late 19th century and, you know, the, the mid to late 20th century, it's sort of staggering. And it becomes really remarkable to see how often his life crisscrossed with, you know, important cultural trends or important other cultural figures. And, you know, he was not somebody who wanted to hobnob with big shots by any means. Um, but, but willy nilly, he wound up being mixed up in so many important moments in the 20th century that that's sort of what I try to track in the book.
1: I thought it was interesting that one of the first things you parallel him with is the progressive movement. And there's a good reason for that, which is that he was a bit of a cause celebre. that the child being abused on stage by his father in their vaudeville act made the three Keatons kind of a, uh, I don't know, a target for a long time for the progressives trying to clean up the theater, which hardly seems to have been the worst problem with child labor in you know the early 1900s, but one can understand that it was a highly visible one.
0: Yeah, I mean, even the term abuse that you use is really our modern eyes looking back at what was happening in the Three Keatons Act. It was certainly a very violent act, and it was known as one of the most violent acts in vaudeville. And of course, that, that violence was all being visited on this small child being thrown around the stage by his father. So you read about it now, and it sounds quite alarming uh, but at the time, the idea that, you know, child abuse or or child labor or, you know, the lack of a compulsory education system for young children was a problem, was a pretty new idea. You know, it was probably only about a generation old, the idea that, you know, childhood was this special time in life to be protected. And so we I write about this some in the book. But yes, his entire childhood, as he's traveling on the vaudeville circuits, performing with his family Especially when they're in New York State, which is where the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children started, they're being dogged by these agents of what was called the Gary Society, named after its founder, which is the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. And they had this almost sort of a police arm, you know, that went around trying to find uh, children being mistreated in the wild, as it were. And this society got a particular obsession with children on stage, performing children, which was a huge trend around the turn of the century. And even more particularly, an obsession with the Three Keatons and this idea that, you know, they had to be driven off the stage. And so the Keatons developed all kinds of tricks to get around this, where, for example, you know, at the beginning of a run, they would perform a gentler version of their act, knowing that they might be getting checked out by the agents. And once they knew that they were in the clear, they would ramp back up to their normal level of mayhem. You know, And they seem to have regarded all of this uh, this police state action trying to regulate their act as just something to laugh off and scoff off. And Buster, his whole life, scoffed at the idea that he had been abused as a child. But it is true that you know when you look at what happened toward the middle of his life and the really hard crash that he took in the era of the passage from silent to sound, that he seems to have been someone who did sustain some trauma and some damage from that period, not only because of being thrown around, but because, you know, that was his job. he He supported his whole family pretty much from the time he was about five years old. So in a way, it seems an enjoyable childhood to be traveling the vaudeville stages with your family and performing with all kinds of, you know animal acts and circus acts, things that he learned a lot of his craft from. but, you know, it was also in the way a deprivation of childhood, and he certainly never had any formal education, which, you know, given how intelligent a person he was, might have been something he would have enormously benefited from.
1: Right, and he winds up paying for his younger siblings to go to boarding school somewhere while he's, you know, out doing three shows a day, so.
0: Right, his parents tried to incorporate his younger siblings into the act, and the idea was, well, we'll become the four Keatons and then the five Keatons. but as it turned out, his two younger siblings, understandably, had neither aptitude nor interest in doing the act. So, you know, it ended up being sort of a divided childhood where mostly the younger siblings were farmed out to boarding schools during the, the year while he toured with his parents and they would all come together in the summer.
1: Yeah. Now, another one, I mean, the, the school, if you ever went to a school, a film school, it was Roscoe Arbuckle's K, uh, Com- which I learned how to pronounce from your book, uh, studio, where Arbuckle, you know, had moved on from Keystone to his own unit as a star and was a really good mentor for Keaton in terms of what to do on screen, because it always seems to me that Arbuckle was one of the first ones trying to get away from just undistinguished mayhem and develop character and, and stuff on stage. You know, the stillness that we see in Keaton was certainly encouraged by Arbuckle.
0: Yeah, they kind of they helped to develop each other's personas, even though they both had already been successful comic performers for quite a while when they met up in 1917. They both developed in that period of apprenticeship of three years or so they were working together. And I have a whole chapter for Roscoe Arbuckle that's just called Roscoe, where I really try to, to focus on who he was as a filmmaker and a director and a person before well, before meeting Keaton, for one thing. But also before the the whole scandal in 1921, which to me very sadly is the only thing he's remembered for in many circles now, right? I mean, he's right. called Fatty, which always bothers me. It was not his name. It was not what his private, you know, in, individuals in his life called him, and it was not what he wanted to be called. And of course, that's a very small indignity compared to him being falsely remembered as this rapist and murderer when in fact neither thing was true, and in fact neither a rape nor a murder even took place at this at this party, you know, where a young woman died, resulting in the end of his career, the beginning of the production code, all of those things that I'm sure your listeners as know about.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. And there's another mentor that you, that you talk about. Uh, I thought this was an interesting theory that, you know, he would have run across the black performer, Burt Williams at different times. And you suggest that some of that, that stillness on stage, I hate to keep using the same word, but that's really what it is. You know, the 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 minimalist activity that makes you look at him, you know, was could have been inspired by Williams and the way he portrayed sort of a doleful African American character.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean there's a there's a chapter in the book about partly about Williams and partly about the movie College, uh, in which, you know, one of Keaton's independently produced Silence, in which he plays a scene in blackface. Not the only blackface scene in his movies either, but but the most extended one and the one that plays the biggest kind of narrative role in the movie, and the one that made me start thinking about Burt Williams in that way, because at the period when Keaton is growing up, Bert Williams was just a huge figure in the culture. He was really the first kind of crossover artist of the 20th century and was big on stage for sure in the Ziegfeld Follies and so forth, toured in vaudeville, sometimes on the same stages as the Keatons, and was also a big recording artist who sold you know, tons and tons of, of, of song recordings that are you can still find very easily on Spotify, et cetera, and they're wonderful to listen to. He's a great sort of storytelling singer, like a talking singer. But anyway... Yes, Williams was known in particular for his his minimalist presence on stage, that he would barely move. He would pick his spot and stand there. And as a result, you know, a little movement of his eyes or, you know, a small gesture would just crack the audience up. And it's hard to imagine, given that Keaton talks about how much he admired Williams and how that's one of his two favorite performers he ever saw on stage, the other being this this clown, this Spanish clown named Marceline, who he must have seen as a child. Um, but Bert Williams was a huge favorite of his. And it's hard to imagine that growing up and watching this unusual style of comedy, that he wasn't incorporating it in some way into his own style. And that's especially true when he's playing this blackface scene many years later in college. And to give a little narrative background for the scene, the conceit of this scene in college is that Keaton is wearing blackface, his character is wearing blackface because he's working kind of undercover at a restaurant. He's working his way through college with this job, but the job was for specifically for an African American kitchen staff person. And so he's in this segregated space where all the customers are white and all the staff is black, played by actual black actors, along with Keaton, who's passing as black. And so when he goes from the kitchen into the dining room, it happens again and again in this scene, he has to keep code switching like as, as far as who he's trying to fool. And uh, and so that you see that when he's trying to fool the white people, he adopts this you know very shuffling and you know to us now very painful to watch kind of darky persona. And it seemed to me like his shuffle, his draping arms, some of the ways that he enacted that character owed some sort of debt to Burt Williams, whether it was even conscious or not, that that was just part of what he had internalized, you know, as a performer who had seen him from a young age.
1: Right. I mean, to some extent, people would what people would read as black is what they would have seen performers like Williams do. So.
0: Right. And you kind of see that in the, in the scene in college. In other words, even in character as this, you know, person in blackface masquerading as someone as another race, he seems to be aware that depending on who you're performing for, blackness gets performed differently. I'm not saying that Keaton had the sophistication to consciously bring that to the performance, but I think that it's something that you see through his gestures and movement in that scene.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. My son's girlfriend is African-American and they're both movie buffs. So, he wanted me to show her a Buster Keaton film, and so I had to quickly think, uh-oh, which ones have blackface scenes? You know, I, I got to not show college or seven chances, you know, and I, I put on uh, Steamboat Bill Jr., which turned out only to have one uncomfortable gag in it. I forget what it is, but...
0: I mean, that stuff is pretty hard to escape in material from that period, from the 20th right. century. And I've come across that in programming screenings to go with my book launch, too. I'm hosting a few screenings, and one of them is for kids specifically at the Museum of the Moving Image. So I picked some shorts that were that had big kid appeal, which I know they do because my daughter loved them when she was six. And there I had to be careful. You know, I'm not going to show a bunch of kids a scene with blackface in it. But for a, a different screening, one that's not especially aimed at kids, I am going to show Neighbors, which has a passing you know very very minor but it has a passing moment of you know him getting black paint or something on his face and being taken by a cop for a black guy and chased for a minute but it's a great movie and yeah. it has incredible moments of comedy and i just feel like you can't bury that stuff you know you you talk about it you contextualize it but you know you don't stop watching the movies
1: right all right, so he he inherits Arbuckle's studio, basically, when Arbuckle moves to Paramount. You know, it's around the same time that he gets married to uh, Natalie Talmadge, one of the Talmadge sisters. His studio is owned by Joe Skank, who's married to another Talmadge. So, you know, every his whole life is sort of in the family, which is a recurring pattern for him. But also, I mean, he he kind of works that into his... Into his movies at that point. I mean, you talk a lot about how One Week is is this very sweet depiction of of uh, romance, but then there's uh, My Wife's Relations, which does not make you want to marry a Talmadge sister at all. So,
0: <laughs> right. I mean, he was never directly autobiographical, but it's really hard not to see. Some of these things that recur and recur and recur in his movies, very often including something to do with, you know, an argument with a father figure, which seems like to me like it all comes from the Joe Keaton memories of his childhood, right? But moments right. where there's some sort of towering authority figure played by Joe Roberts or, you know, by Ernest Torrance and Steamboat Bill Jr., who's towering over him and intimidating him, but who he somehow outsmarts and and tricks. That's one um but but one week as you say is is something of a unique moment in his filmography because I don't think he was ever that optimistic and that romantic again
1: yeah and it's interesting i think the thing you also see in his films and you'd seen it to some extent in Arbuckle's uh that he made you know working for Arbuckle that you know the modernism that people responded to i mean he's conscious of the media sometimes he's doing actual parodies or parodying a concept i mean there's no reason to think about intolerance watching three ages except it explicitly is using the the multi-story format of three of intolerance and making fun of it a little bit there's a referentiality in it, in his films that uh keeps coming up. And, you know, most, I suppose, in Sherlock Jr., where he literally goes into the movie.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's a moment where, you know, he's he's making a movie about filmmaking itself. And of course, as you say, he also loved to do topical spoofs of things, even though what he was spoofing might not be familiar to us anymore. We still get the joke in Three Ages, right? Or in The Frozen North, where he's spoofing Bill S. Hart, the sentimental Western star. Those are moments where, you know, he was somebody of his time who was grabbing little bits from the pop culture around him and turning them into his own thing. This Sherlock Jr. is something a little bit different because it, it, it's it's so completely original. You know, the idea actually for that stepping into the screen sequence came from his cinematographer, Elgin Leslie, who loved a challenge and liked to try new technical things and, you know, had this idea, what if you were a projectionist who stepped into a movie screen? And then, of course, the big question became, how do we create that illusion? And Keaton loved to talk about that, about the the, the te- technicalities of filming that scene and, and how he fooled everyone. He loved to talk about how, for example, cinematographers would go to that movie and try to figure out how the effect had been done.
1: The other thing that happens in film during that time is that it becomes increasingly corporate. And he gets caught up in that. I mean, particularly when he goes to MGM, but also that there's, you know, there's a way that Steamboat Bill Jr. is kind of the conclusion of his independent film period.
0: Yeah, Steamboat Bill Jr., which is maybe my favorite Keaton feature, I really have great personal affection for that movie, um, is really poignant to watch if you know a little bit about his life and what was going on in it at that moment, because it is his last independent, independently produced feature, but he didn't know it was going to be when he started making the movie. So as he was planning and shooting that great hurricane sequence that ends Steamboat Bill Jr., the most famous shot from which is, of course, the moment that the house front collapses on him. But that's all part of a whole crazy swirl of you know big stunts at the end of that movie. So it was Labor Day weekend of 1927, and that whole shot had just been set up to be filmed, the one of the collapsing house front, which, as you can imagine, took a lot of advanced planning and production design. You know, It was an incredibly dangerous stunt. It was a real two-ton house front that was collapsing on him, so it could obviously only be filmed once. I mean, you could only build that set once and destroy it once. And, you know, he had to survive the stunt. And so all of that was already in play and must have been making him and his crew really anxious. And that weekend before the stunt was to be shot, Joe Skank, who was his producer, his brother-in-law, you know, had been his patron, essentially, funding his, his independent film operation for almost a decade, took him aside and said, look, Buster. The film industry is changing, you know, the studio system is taking over, it's no longer sustainable to have these kind of independent productions. That was probably something they had been seeing coming since The General, which we can talk about later, but you know, which was a a complete financial fiasco for, for Skink's company, even though it's now regarded as, you know, Keaton's masterpiece. And so knowing that all of that is in the works, Buster is still shocked to hear that this is going to be his last independently produced movie, and that his creative freedom is being taken away, and that what's going to happen to him next, and he didn't really put up that much of a fight about it because there wasn't that much choice is that he's going to get handed over to Joe Skank's brother, Nick Skank, who is the president. I don't know what his title was, but he was the money guy at MGM at the time. And so Keaton was going to become a contract player at MGM. And as it turns out, you know, was going to be absolutely miserable there, have no creative freedom at all, and just be a cog in the machine of of producing movies that other people conceived for him. And he had just discovered that at the moment he went to to film the house stunt. So knowing all that, of course, watching that house front collapse on him is is all the more poignant. And uh, much much later, his his widow, after he was gone, his widow Eleanor Keaton, talking about that scene, said, you know, that at that moment that the house front collapsed, he didn't care if he lived or died. You know, that he almost had a a, a suicidal kind of self-destructive urge to, you know, and obviously the stunt the stunt had not been created with that in mind but that at the moment it collapsed around him he didn't really care what happened.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, to be fair to Nick Skank who's not generally a beloved figure. Um it it's wasn't that uh you know they were out to screw Keaton, it was that the business was changing. I mean, we talk about you know the general it just wasn't efficient to make movies the way that uh Keaton had been making them.
0: Right. I mean, there were so many forces at work then that it it can't just be looked at as a personal decision. You know, it certainly was, uh, he later called it the worst mistake of his life to sign with MGM. But he did try to go to another studio and get work. That didn't work out. I mean, essentially, he, he sort of stayed in the family network that was comfortable for him. As you say, he was somebody who always worked with family members, both on the stage and later in film. And he had a passive element to his character that I talk about in the book a lot in his personal life and in his professional life. And you even see it in his character on screen, who's always being buffeted around, right? And his, his task, his character's task is always to find some some way to have, a, have control over this utterly chaotic situation that surrounds him. And in the late 20s, there just came to be this moment when he lost that control. You know, he lost it personally and professionally and went into the darkest period of his life.
1: You know, I always wondered... You know, Could he have gone somewhere like Paramount that seemed more congenial to comedians? But the reality is the Marx Brothers were at Paramount, and they wound up at MGM, too. So,
0: Yeah, and I think there was probably no way he could have known, especially because for his first two movies at MGM, The Cameraman and Spite Marriage, which are his last two silent movies... He did have a fair amount of creative control, and those still feel like Keaton movies. In fact, *The Cameraman* is, is one of his greatest movies. So, you know, there was a period where he might have thought, "Hey, I can swing this. You know, I can I can work within this system and still make something that's worthwhile for me." But especially with the coming of sound, he just we they really never found the right thing to do with him. You know, nobody at MGM understood his sense of humor or why he was funny. And as you say, it was not a great studio for comedy anyway. Louis B. Mayer didn't even like comedy, right. so he was he was really terribly mis placed there. And I have to say that the hardest part of this book to research was watching those early talkies, those NBA talkies from the thirties. They are so terrible and he's so abjectly miserable in them and so completely miscast. And, you know, it's just, it was, it was honestly hard to get through some of them, especially the later ones where, you know, you see his physical deterioration and that he's drinking and you know, that behind the scenes he was not showing up to set. And, you know, he was just had always been the consummate professional, incredible work ethic, and, you know, really, he was pleasant to work with for his for his crew members, but he drove them hard. He really wanted his crew and his cast to be there and to be engaged, be on the same page. And yet at MGM, when he started to get depressed and his marriage started to fall apart and his drinking got worse, he became the one who was holding up, you know, holding up the set by not showing up, which is why he got eventually fired.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just think the Elmer character, it's not... I mean, partly it's just his voice, but also just the way his character is conceived as sort of this imbecile, this country bumpkin. It's not the Keaton that I know from The Great Silence. It just seems, you know, such a departure for him. You know, it's like if Groucho changed into a completely different character or something.
0: Right. I mean, it's it's one thing if somebody's character develops, right, out of their own desire to to do something different and try something different the way Chaplin did in his career, but Keaton never had that choice or that chance to decide what is it that you'd like to do next at MGM. He was slotted into, as you say, this character, Elmer, who was kind of a rube, you know, who was incredibly stupid and and who somehow that, that, that ability that Keaton had to, to be impassive through chaotic circumstances became just people beating up on him. You know, there's something almost sadomasochistic about some of those Elmer gags where, you know, he's just basically a punching bag and uh, it's it's really hard to watch.
1: Yeah. You talk about how as we all know, he was an alcoholic and particularly low at this point. Um, it's interesting you parallel it with something else about the 20th century that came about then, which is the recovery movement in the form of AA. I mean, he never took part in AA, but how he did and didn't deal with his drinking uh, is interestingly reflected in how AA changed how people thought about alcoholism.
0: Yeah, it was really just the temporal convergence of his getting sober in 1935, in, in the most brutal way, right, by, by being taken in a straitjacket to a rehabilitation hospital that I'm sure was a very grim and brutal place. Um, and, and 1935 also happens to be the year that's celebrated as the birth of AA. And so I tried to trace those things a little bit together and just talk about what it meant to be an addict in the 1930s, which is obviously so different than what it's like to be an addict now when, you know, obviously we still haven't solved this problem, but, you know, we have so many more humane ways of reaching out and of of of, of helping People to recover is maybe not the word, but, you know, to become sober and live a life of sobriety. And that all of that language was just completely outside of Keaton's experience. He really just kind of white knuckled his way to sobriety and never became completely sober in the sense that he never slipped off the wagon again, which, of course, could be true of an AA member as well. But I wanted to just look at at that and at the role alcohol Played in his life because I think too often he's sort of understood, and the end of silence and the coming of sound in general is too much understood as then everything fell apart and everyone's career was over. And that's not necessarily true. There were stars that reinvented themselves, there were stars that survived, the, you know, just straight up like Garbo, who got more successful after sound came in. And then there are people like Keaton, who had this temporary dip, you know, in a few really, really rough years. And then really fought his way back to, you know, becoming a, a force in the industry again. At first behind the scenes and then in front of the camera again.
1: Yeah, so he kind of works his way back to I mean, he's working as a gag writer and making occasional appearances at MGM. You know, he's in things like in the good old summertime. But really, I mean the next sort of twentieth century innovation that he's deeply involved with is television.
0: Yeah. I mean this is this is a, a reason that I wanted to spend some time on the last part of his life is that again you know, it might be easy for us to think, well, maybe not now that we're in the golden age of streaming television. It's 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 classy to be on TV again now. But you can easily see in some older Keaton biographies that television almost gets talked about like, well, then he was on TV, as if that was some sort of downfall for him, when in fact, he loved being on TV. He was always excited about new technologies. And he was not wrong in being on the cutting edge in that sense. You know, I mean, if you look at At trade papers from that period, the late 40s and 50s, as TV is starting to get big, the movies were in a panic about what they were going to do to survive and how they would get people to keep coming to theaters when they now had a little box in their home that would deliver entertainment to them. There's some quotes from Keaton, you know, his son, I think, provided one of them to a biographer once about his reaction to TV when he first saw it and what an early adopter he was. And from the beginning, he had a kind of prescient way of talking about TV where he said, this is the coming thing in entertainment. And that's the name of a chapter in my book, The Coming Thing in Entertainment. He sort of saw that that was going to be the future of entertainment. He even foresaw cable TV in a way and talked about how he thought, you know, that there should be this sort of, um, you know, interconnected, you know, ability to get TV on demand, like things that happened way, way after his death. He had sort of envisioned, you know, maybe this is the way that this medium is going to go. So he was really curious about TV. He would do anything. He was on The Twilight Zone, a candid camera and. The Donna Reed Show sitcom and, you know, did little variety bits in all kinds of different shows and played a straight dramatic role, actually, in a in a made-for-television drama based on a, a Nikolai Gogol short story, you know, which is something very arty for him to do, but he's fantastic in that role. So I love watching the, the Keaton on TV stuff. And by the way, for your listeners, it's almost all available on YouTube. So, you know, this stuff I'm talking about is very easy to find and watch.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me, you know, we, we always say, ah, oh, vaudeville died at in the twenties or thirties. But then vaudeville had its last laugh because vaudeville basically became television in those early days. That's, that's exactly what Keaton fit into he's just back being in the three Keatons or, you know, his own uh, vaudeville career again, doing different versions of the butcher boy. I mean, like you talk about uh, on YouTube, I mean, you can watch him do different variations of, of the butcher boy on different uh, you know, different TV shows back then with different guest stars. So
0: yeah, there was this term vaudio that was popular at the time, right, which is a combination of vaudeville and video. And the right. idea that in those very early days of TV, before TV had quite decided where where it was going to get its talent and what it was going to be, it got it got talent mainly from radio and from vaudeville. So this, you know, those kind of acts started to be reenacted like Milton Berle, right, was a, was yeah. a um, vaudeville and radio comic who then became Mr. Television, they called him, the host of, a, of his own TV show. So that was perfectly timed for Keaton, and he could do that vaudeville stuff, but that wasn't all he did on TV at all. I mean, he was he was pretty much open to trying any new form, including commercials, which he made right. a lot of in the early 60s
1: yeah no i mean as an, as an old ad guy i mean obviously he's way before my time but i grew up knowing you know that you don't have to be jewish to love levy's rye uh mm-hmm. ads and things like that and um actually i, I someone at one of the places I worked had like a John Deere film that had Keaton in it. That,
0: oh yeah, the industrial film he made, right. Yeah.
1: Um, so, you know, a guy who was happy to work on whatever presented itself that week. And, and I also think it's interesting, um, you don't go into this so much, again, another set of terrible movies that you would have been forced to watch to write, read this, or to write this book. But, you know, the beach movies and things like that, you know, he he adapted well to a younger crowd and you know, when act serious actors of his same age would have been completely out of place in such things, he just fit right in. So,
0: yeah, I mean, he didn't have much of an ego as a performer, you know, he wasn't a credit hog. He put other people's names in in the credits to his movies routinely. So you'll see a silent film that seems to be directed by someone else actually directed by him. And that fits into those movies he did with American international pictures too, which is the, you know, the cheapo company that made all those beach blenders. Um, you know, they were easy work for him. He wanted to sock away money for his widow to be, because his wife was much younger, and he knew she would outlive him. He was still supporting his his family of origin as well, and so he would he would never say no to work. Although there's a funny moment in his his interview with um Kevin Brownlow, the great silent film historian, where he asks him. It was in the early '60s when he was making those movies, and Brownlow asks him, "Oh, what about this?" beach picture you just made. What do you have to say about that? And then he describes the sound that Keaton makes in response as a contemptuous noise. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, he was not necessarily having a great creative time making those pictures, but it was probably a couple days of work for him. And in the meantime, it was a sort of a one for you, one for me situation where he was finding other things that did interest him to do.
1: Yeah. You talk a bit about film, the Samuel Beckett scripted thing that he made. Uh, which I don't think anybody particularly likes, but it is interesting how you know the, the real highbrow artists often responded to something in his work, finding him interesting. You talk a lot about Robert Sherwood, the critic, you know, revering Keaton at a very early age. Maybe he's the first one to really articulate that. Um, I remember there was that in Tom Dartis's biography, he quotes an entire little playlet that I think Federico Garcia Lorca wrote for Key Right,
2: right.
1: You know, all these, they seemed to sense that he was one of us, even though he obviously didn't have the same education they did or the same, you know, desire to think of the world in highbrow terms in any way.
0: Yeah, I think this is something I kept on returning to writing is I don't think there's anyone I can think of in the modern age anyway, who was as great an artist as Buster Keaton without considering himself an artist in any way. And in fact, you know, somewhat laughing off the title, if he was approached by an interviewer who treated him as a genius or an artist or had that kind of highbrow language, he was not comfortable with it. He really did think of himself as an entertainer, first and foremost, and somebody who was just out to get laughs. And so questions about what did this mean or what were you trying to do in this movie? Would rarely get an interesting response from him. Whereas if you said, "How did you light the set and Sherlock Jr. so that it looked like a movie screen?" You know, when it was actually a stage, he he could talk about it all day.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you you talk about cops. I mean, I'm jumping way back in time in the in his life in your book here, but you know, cops in terms of being inspired by actual you know anarchist bombing incidents that happened around the same time, and Keaton immediately turns them into a gag. But he. You know, clearly is in some sense identifying with the profound sense of alienation of this guy being chased by a gazillion cops. Not least because he does it a few other times. I mean, the goat is basically uh, a similar, you know, sort of Kafka esque plot. I mean, what do you think was going on with Keaton that he he seemed to, you know, drift to that that sort of alienated sensibility?
0: I guess that's sort of what I mean about him being. One of the great artists who didn't try to be an artist or set, you know, set out to be or realize he was one. Exactly. Right. Like they're so Kafkaesque, those moments you're talking about. Yet cops could not possibly have been channeling Franz Kafka. I mean, I don't think Kafka had even been translated at that point. And at any rate, certainly Buster Keaton would never have read some Czech novelist in translation. right? Right. So. He's what he's really doing is channeling just forces in the culture, in world culture, you know, not just American, that they're both feeling at that moment. And I talk about I don't know if Kafka comes up in the book, but I talk in the book about Keaton as a modernist, you know, about the fact that although he didn't place himself in any way as an artist or part of any movement, you can completely see him as being in the same line as the surrealists. You know, Bunuel also wrote about him, I think or Virginia Woolf, or James Joyce, or or even early jazz musicians who were kind of breaking up music in new ways because he was somebody who was inventing the medium he was working in as he worked in it, you know? So, of course, he's going to be picking up on topical things or trends from his time or kind of, um, for example, that sense of urban alienation you're talking about in Cops, right? I mean, the words urban alienation would never have occurred to Buster Keaton's mind, but he was living that reality and so he expressed it in his art.
1: Do you think that's why he's one of the very few figures from that period that we can just relate to? I mean, that you can show Buster Keaton to people who would never sit through, you know, a serious silent drama. And they just respond to it instantly.
0: Yeah, he's such a crowd pleaser. And I feel really confident about that in planning events for this book, you know, when I'm picking out movies for screenings and things like that, is It's very hard to come up with a silent movie that he made that doesn't play today. You know, there may be different settings that suit different ones better. But, you know, people of any age, and I know this from having shown Keaton to people in their 80s and, you know, my six-year-old daughter, like people shown his movies will laugh. I mean, there's just there's something so timeless about his comedy that you know, it's it's almost incredible. These movies are hundred years old, and you know they can convulse a movie theater to this very day.
1: Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema, and The Invention of the 20th Century, is out now from Atria Books. A link to the book and to Dana Stevens' book tour, including screenings of Keaton's films, will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Oh, darling.
2: are you jealous of my husband? Why shouldn't I be? He has you. You too? Yes, but I know of him. He is by far the better of it. He doesn't
1: know of me
3: shall i tell him of you
1: good heavens no we gotta be on the square with each other
3: i know it johnny and i've been on the square with you honest i have
1: ain't i always been johnny sure you have babe and there ain't a dame on the street that ain't jealous of you because you got me looking after
3: you you want a
2: little kid so pucker up like this to me nice and gentle baby maybe i'll
3: Do you have to do that? I'm singing. I had an aunt once who you to make noises like that. She called it neurology. Have you got it? Sure I got it. I sent my chauffeur all the way to town for it, and it's guaranteed to raise waves of emotion in the breast of the most reluctant male. Are you sure it'll work? Work? Sure. I just poured some on a cat, and already she's had seven kittens.
1: Growing up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I lived in a world in which great stars of the 1930s still walked among us. I saw new movies with people like Katharine Hepburn, Henry Fonda, Betty Davis, and James Cagney when they first came out. But what I almost never saw were the stars of just a few years before them, the early days of sound and the pre-code era. Those films never made it to TV, and were rare even in film society screenings if they weren't named Frankenstein or Animal Crackers. In February, the Museum of Modern Art is devoting an entire series to some of the women stars who rose up in that forgotten in-between era, and sometimes fell just as fast. Dames, Janes, Dolls, and Canaries, Women Stars of the Pre-Code Era, is the name of the retrospective. And the programmer behind it is Farron Smith-Neme, a past guest on Nitrateville Radio and a frequent writer or commentary track provider for old movies on Blu-ray. I spoke with her from New York. So, your name has come up a lot lately. We did the, uh... Ten best physical media releases of the year episode recently. And about every release either had a commentary track by you or by Eddie Muller. So
2: <laughs> I, I hope I hope people aren't getting tired of me. I have not listened to the ten best um, physical media that I I always I make a point of listening to it, but I haven't had a chance yet. So now I'll, I'll definitely have to, How
1: how'd that come about that you became the commentary track queen?
2: Oh no no no, that's not me. I am not the commentary track queen. That would be Cat Allinger, you know. And uh, there's there's really no no contest there. I I don't know because truth be told, um, commentary tracks are a little intimidating. Um, there there are um, they're a lot of work, and uh, and there are a lot of like preparation and then you you feel like the person needs to take out all of your ums and your (laughs) nos and things and uh I but I guess I'm I'm willing to do them um and uh especially for things that I really like you know like you asked me to talk about Mae West and kind of give me my pick I'm like oh (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah I'll do that um, There's there are some films that I would not want to do a commentary track for. You know, um, some really um, like towering, <laughs> like, <laughs> masterpiece kind of films. I, I I think I might be too intimidated to go after. But some but something like um, May West, I'm like, okay, yeah, great.
1: Awesome. Se- <laughs> Seventy minutes from the '30s, I can handle that. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah.
1: Just don't give me, you know, the the restored full-length version of the leopard or something.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to do Marchetta Lazzarova, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: Um, all right. Well, uh, we are here today to talk about uh, this MoMA series that's coming up. How'd that come about?
2: Well, um, I helped sort of a, a longstanding um, professional and, you know, like, professional relationship and friendship with uh Dave Kerr, um, who's been a, a curator at MoMA now for what, some years. Yeah. Um and I, I really admire and believe in what he's been using his position there to do, which I think is expand our notion of uh, classic film, uh, expanding our notion of what are the, the masterpieces and the landmarks of classic film. What we think of as like the great old movies has in large measure been shaped by what's been available sure. on, on TV and on TCM and uh, what's kind of been circulating. And that is not everything not by a long shot, right? You know, a lot of Warner brothers, a lot of MGM, a lot of RKO, you know, um, because of, you know, Ted Turner, God bless him. You know, we're all very happy that he acquired that library, but there is a lot of other stuff. So things that Dave was doing, like his, uh, his Fox series, um, we just got Fox rediscoveries is saying, look at these amazing movies made with the movie tone process, which was completely different from what um, what Warner Brothers had with Vitaphone. It was sound on film so they could move the camera a lot. You know, look at look at transatlantic. You know, um, look at the uh, the 1930 version of the Seawolf and see how amazing these movies are visually because of the technology. So that's kind of been his mission while he's been over there. And uh, so I've kind of worked to help promote it and uh, write about it. And in the course of a discussion that we had, and it's been a while now, this was about 2019, um, he said, well, you know, if you wanted to propose a series, you know, I'd I'd be willing to take a look. And I said, well, it's funny you should mention that (laughs) because I had, in fact, been thinking for a while about doing something with the lesser known pre-code actresses, the ones who didn't go on to become Joan Crawford or Barbara Stanwyck or whatever, um, the ones who kind of flourished in that brief, window of time. And then, you know, sort of, you know, some of them retired, some of them got married. Um, It's not a story of a bunch of actresses tragically having their careers cut short, although that was the case for a few. But uh, a lot of times it's just um, actresses not kind of making headway (laughs) into greater stardom and, uh, you know, hanging up their hat moving on to other stuff. So I sort of proposed this to him and he liked the idea. And then there was a, you know, I learned a lot about programming and about the horse trading that goes on with programming. Um, Like, no, you're not going to be able to get this film. No, you're not going to be able to get that film. Um, There's a lot of that. Uh, And that kind of affected what we had. But in the end, I thought we came up with a really good list. Um, and some really unusual, um, not very often seen films like from UCLA and from the Library of Congress and also from MoMA's own library. And I was all excited. And I think like the last thing that I did in 2020 before the world shut down was I went up to MoMA to sit down with um, Dave and go through and get stills for the program. uh, MoMA has a wonderful library of stills. That was really exciting. It was like the last time I was on the subway for seven
1: months. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it just, it, it got moved. Um, And then uh, they were going to try and do it in in 2021, but then it got, you know, MoMA's got other series they're doing. So finally, we landed on early February. Um, As we record this, Omicron is like sort of swept through the city, but I get the impression it's... um, I mean, one would not say it's gone away by any means, but I feel like it's it's lessening where it, there's a palpable feeling that we're kind of on the downward slope with it. My perception is based on the fact that um, I know so many people who got it um, who are now over it. Um, right. So it's not being spread around quite as much. Plus, I. Um, MoMA has a really strict vaccination program. They have a really strict um, policy on how many people they will let into the theater in terms of spacing. They have excellent ventilation. And I personally feel fine about going there with a you know suitable mask facing forward and watching a movie. I'm excited to do it, actually.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean... This series is interesting because, I mean, it was one of those things I noticed early on when I was a kid. It's like, there's no movies that I know from, like, four years there except the coconuts. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it was like... <laughs> yeah. uh you know, movies stopped in about 1928 and they started again in 1932 to judge by what I had the ability to see. And so I always kind of wondered about that, period. And it's not surprising that if there's these films we didn't see, there are people we didn't see during that time, too. That there, you know, people whose careers kind of rose and fell. I mean, even if they worked, I mean, I just saw Anne Harding in, uh, what's that Christmas movie? Uh, it Happened on Fifth Avenue. Yeah. You yeah. know, So there she's working 20 years later, but even so her, her moment as some kind of star is, is right in that short period. So,
2: yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited to kind of bring out these, these movies. Um, East Lynn, the uh, Anne Harding movie that we're showing um, is, uh, is one that I think is particularly hard to see um, in its, in its complete version and see, it is like a, 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 a war horse kind of movie. And Frank Lloyd is not William K. Howard. I want to be clear about that. But um, but her performance is really quite marvelous. She was a very unique actress. Um, and I'd love to see her in various things. So I think that if you have any kind of interest at all in her acting and it's even in in like the acting styles of the early '30s, this is going to be a really interesting movie. Plus, you know, it's it's just interesting to see this thing that's so obscure. I mean, right. you can, you can see like I think six reels of it on uh, on you know various places that I will not mention
1: by <laughs> name. But yeah. um,
2: uh, but it, you know the, this is the complete movie. So.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk. So, who are some of the other stars that are featured in it?
2: I I picked um so some of the um the people that I, I picked. We just did one movie, you know, maybe because we felt like you know they weren't as neglected, but they had um, various movies that hadn't been seen as much. So that would be like Clara Bow, B.B. Daniels. Um, Helen 12 trees. We have like one movie from each of them. And those are, you know, I think, um, less shown of, of them, you know, like Millie is the one that Helen 12 trees that you see from that, um, with, uh, with Clara Bow it's Call her savage with BB Daniels. Um, I, <laughs> I, I would like your listeners to know that I, I tried to get Rio Rita. <laughs> <You> know, <Okay. laughs> I'm, I'm not going to explain what was the, the problem with getting Rio Rita, but it didn't work out. Um, okay. So, you know, because um, I, I read Nitrateville sometimes. I know people want to see Rio Rita. Right. I would really like to see a good print of Rio Rita, but unfortunately not this go
1: around. Yeah.
2: Maybe eventually.
1: Um, so uh, what's the B.B. Daniels film?
2: Uh, it is Reaching for the Moon, okay. which uh, was going to be a full-scale musical with uh, with songs by Irving Berlin. And uh, what happened then was that, you know, Hollywood sort of ran the musical trend into the ground. And they, they do this now, you know, like they decide <laughs> everybody wants one kind of movie and then uh, sure. nobody wants that kind of movie. Um, although we're still kind of waiting for that with... Some of Some like of
1: <laughs> the superheroes. <thing>. Yes, Please <laughs> wants something else. Yeah, right.
2: Yeah. Um, but. So in this case, they they had decided nobody wants musicals, so they stripped all the musicals out, which is unfortunate because Bibi Daniels was a really charming singer. She was a very nice musical performer, um, but in so instead, what you have is this uh, romantic comedy on a ship, which is fine by me. I love things that are set on <laughs> ships. Yeah. yeah, The only thing that that might be slightly better is uh, something on a train, and right. we have that too. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, with with Douglas Fairbanks senior um, one of his uh, his talkies I, I suppose um I was focusing on actresses but he was one of the ones who kind of petered out in in talkies sure. but uh, but I think I um, I like him in this movie I his reputation as a talkie actor is not that high, but he's got that enormous personality and charisma. And I think it's in everything he ever did. Um, So yeah, that is reaching for the moon.
1: Yeah. And another one uh, that I thought was interesting. uh, You talk about in the notes is Alyssa Landy being. Yes. Yeah. Miss sold as sort of another Dietrich has tended to happen back then, but you think she has other charms.
2: Yeah, you know like I did not I, I didn't think much of Alyssa Landy for a long time. I was like, oh god her because I had only seen her in Sign of the Cross. Yeah. Um where which simply does not play to her strengths. Yeah. She's She has a very you
1: know, authentic first century Marcel hairdo. <laughs> yeah.
2: And um, I mean that that is an enormously fun, gorgeous to look at movie, but her character is, you know, just this, this stiff, martyred virgin. Right. And, um, and a lot of her expressions and things, I don't, you know, I, well, DeMille to, to was not someone who really kind of coaxed subtle performances out of his life <laughs> right. anyway. Um, so, I, but then, once I started seeing, like during the Fox series, actually, I saw a, a few more um, movies from Alyssa Landy. I was like, this is an interesting woman. She's really interesting on screen. She's not like she's not like Garbo. She's not like Dietrich. She's kind of doing her own thing, and give her a lively part, like by candlelight, um, with. James Whale, the train movie I was referring to, although it's <laughs> not entirely on a train. And she's really charming. Um, she's really got something. She was so beautiful, too. I mean, she's very easy on the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yes, yeah, so we have that one. And then, um, right, what, it, Body and Soul. Um, directed by Alfred Santel, who is uh, another one of, of Dave Kerr's pet causes. Hmm. I, I like I like to tease him about these uh, directors that he has, you know, that are like his teachers' pets. Alfred Santel is is one of them, um, but you know, for for good reason. I mean, if Dave tells you a director is worth exploring, he's worth exploring. Right. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, I'm just looking him up quickly. I don't. I couldn't even name. A uh, <laughs> winter set and the gorilla, the two yeah, the-, <laughs> the, the two edges of his career. Yeah,
2: he a- um, you know, he is not someone I'm super familiar with either. But the the one the movie that uh, Dave was promoting um, earlier that is like from the 1940s. Much later is called That Brennan Girl. Oh, right. Yeah. That's a really remarkable melodrama. Um, Visually really extraordinary um, with a a great central performance. I really like that movie a lot. Um, So Body and Soul is also, you know, he's definitely got something. You know, okay. you can you can see the way the way he moves the camera, his his use of framing. It's visually a very interesting movie.
1: I see. He did the first Doctor Kildare movie. Interns can't take money.
2: Oh which yes, is, which is <laughs> yeah.
1: very stylish. It's it's totally bonkers, but uh, very sort of uh, chic and streamlined looking in the hospital.
2: Yeah, I like I like that movie too. Although I always feel like the the e at the end of interns kind of signals how weird the movie is. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> Another one I thought was really interesting was Mary Nolan, who has such an odd uh, career. She was she was a Zigfil dancer, and then she went into German films, like you know, like the uh, Road Company Louise Brooks here. Uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. And we and we have one of those German films, one of the German silence that she made um, and uh, I have I have seen it um, I, I programmed it sight unseen uh, It's like <laughs> okay the the German archive has a, a movie that they're willing to lend us you know and I'm like yeah, absolutely because she's that interesting to me as an actress um, and it turns out the the movie itself is, um, also, it's, it's a really good-looking movie. Poor Lupu Pick, he died way before his time. Right. Um, and he was also a, a very talented director. Um, and she's really good in it. I think people are going to be very pleased with this movie. Um, and then the other one is Young Desire, which I think Dave... Um, during his Fox period. Um, She sort of like started out in the pre-code period making some studio movies, but then, um, God bless her, she had an enormous and seemingly limitless ability to screw up her own life, Um, often with help, you know, from uh, the really terrible men she kept getting involved with. Um, But... Yeah. So at that point when she made Young Desire, she already uh, was having trouble with a drug addiction that apparently that she said later. And I believe her actually um, uh, had started while she was in the hospital after um, being beaten up really badly by the um, terrifying and loathsome Eddie Mannix. Um, who she was, uh, having an affair with, he was married at the time. Um, and so she was already drug addicted. Um, but I mean, I, she's so, she has a really unique modern way about her acting. If she had been able to continue, it would have been so fascinating to see what happened to her career. She did make um, a few more movies after Young Desire. I have not been able to track those down. But Young Desire itself is set in a carnival. Um, If you're a Nightmare Alley person, you absolutely... (laughs) either version any of the versions um you should absolutely see this movie because it's uh it's also a really sinister seedy kind of carnival atmosphere and she's amazing in it and the the finale you know like the the last part of the movie um the audience gasped. You know? <laughs> um, it, yeah, I, I definitely highly recommend that one as well.
1: Okay. I mean, what do you think about these as a class of actresses? Is there something that you see kind of typical of that period that then changes you know, later in sound? I mean, obviously, uh, the code comes in at one point, which is going to change everything. Um, but is there kind of a, uh, a style from this period that you see common to these actresses?
2: I mean, there are a few like Nancy Carroll. There's two films from her, and I, I really feel like Nancy Carroll could have gone on to to be successful in in the later phase of 1930s movies. I think she would have done really well in screwball, various kinds of um, of musicals. Uh, But she, like, just had – she could not get along with the studio powers that be. When I was going through the magazines and things, uh, there was all just all of these gossip items. um, And some of them seemed so petty. I really started to wonder who she had pissed off. (laughs) But – So, Nancy Carroll is one who I think would have like fit in later, but a lot of them, like uh, someone like um, Sally Eilers, for example, um, Mae Clark, although she went on to have, uh, she worked throughout the 30s in in smaller roles, but they were, um, they had a, a roughness about them, like an edge to them that was very, suited to the early thirties, not so much to like post nineteen right. thirty four, where they started wanting glossier things, you know, women who would fit in a penthouse milieu as, as well as <laughs> yeah. as well as in a taxi stand. Right. So, so that, that that was definitely somebody like Loretta Young. That was maybe not so much someone like uh, Helen Twelptrees.
1: Yeah, Mae Clark is one. I mean, I think she's a really good actress, and you know, several very good performances, like Waterloo Bridge. But she did not have star quality. I mean, she just she doesn't light up the screen. So you, you know, you react to her when she. You know, when she's kind of downtrodden, you know, you're sympathetic to her. But, you know, next to Catherine Hepburn, she'd just be blown away.
2: Yeah. I I mean, uh, that's that's, uh, another thing and a very good point. I mean, um, I think the emphasis on the star system increased. Um, throughout the the decade, so they wanted more of that star quality, right? And with Mae Clark, you just had a really good actress, um, yeah. and uh, and they are you know if if you were going to do that, you needed to be Barbara Stanwyck, where you could kind of give both. Um, yeah. So.
1: Yeah, Stanwyck is one that you highlight in *Bitter Tea of General Yen*, who did survive this period and remain a star for 40 years or whatever yeah to me she's the most reliable of old-time actresses you know i can't remember who said this but somebody said you know she's never done anything false on the screen and that's how i feel about her yeah um you know why why'd she succeed when others didn't make it
2: i mean in in some cases it's it's luck but I think um, Stam- Stamwick, um had a chameleon-like ability, and she was so reliable. You know, like um, du- Directors knew that they could put her in. They were going to get a good performance from Barbara Stanwyck, and she was not going to be any kind of a pain in the ass. Right. <laughs> you know? um, and that that... Definitely counts. And audiences liked her as well. I think that she was lucky in that um, when she really started taking off was right around when the change was occurring. So rather than being someone where they were like, ah, she's kind of old hat, she was able to ride that wave and kind of surf it into the later 30s. Yeah. The other thing is that Barbara Stanwyck was just a great, great actress. You know? Yeah, <laughs> in a way that and, Sally uh, Eilers and, is and, not, and, and a great star. So that's always going to help.
1: Yeah. Is there anyone in particular that you you want people to uh, rediscover? Maybe someone you have already talked about. Well,
2: we 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 talked about we talked about, um, we talked about uh, Mary Nolan, yeah. who I just you know I feel this real attachment to her. She reminds me of Barbara Payton, um, from a much later era, just, you know, like an extraordinarily beautiful, um, woman with, uh, a lot of raw acting talent who, you know, fate just kind of kicked in the teeth over and over again. Um, but I mean, I think that really, I like all of them. Bitter Tea of General Yen is actually in the program to to highlight um, Toshio Murai. Um, speaking of pronunciation, I hope I've got that right. <laughs> but um, she's someone that I just I found myself looking for in small parts, not unlike um, Teresa Russell, um, the black actress who was also you know in. To 1930s. Um, the 1930s, that Toshia Morai, she's so good in Bitter Tea of General Yan. Um, and uh, I did a bunch of research on her, too. Um, what kind of became of her and her career? There are some kind of mysterious spots in it, there is some indication from like a real historian that her parents were interned um, during World War II. Her father was a a physician, but no real word on she herself. Uh, Some of the early publicity on her, they would uh, write about her and say that she was Chinese. They were really kind of cavalier (laughs) about her background um but she was she was so beautiful she has uh, such you know like a a quality about her on screen that um she's um she's one of the i think the most painful one to contemplate in this series because she just uh,
1: never got a chance
2: yeah there was there was no reason other than racism for her not to become much more than she did.
1: Yeah, Sort of like Freddie Washington. Exactly. You know, I'll tell you the one that I was kind of surprised didn't turn up here anywhere is Dorothy McHale.
2: You know, I I was actually going to bring her up. The thing about Dorothy McHale is that um, uh, Safe in Hell is the one that everybody has seen. It's also the one that's easiest to get. When I sort of started uh, going through her filmography and trying to find a a different one to screen. um, It it just, (laughs) there wasn't a lot that we could get and I didn't want to screen safe in hell again, because part of the, part of the purpose of the series was to kind of bring lesser known films to life whenever possible. Yeah, I mean, clearly, I think a lot of people have seen "Bitter Tea of General Yen." Um, a lot of people have seen "Bird of Paradise," um, which has been circulating in really awful public domain copies. Um, that will not be the case here.
1: You can see the program and program notes on the MoMA site. There will be a link in the show post at nitrateville.com.
0: One of the things we like to say about the nitrate vaults here that we are the living bod- embodiment of the old statement uh, stored in a cool, dry place. And to show what happens when you don't store film in a cool, dry place, we have this little gem that we keep. Um, this is a film that was stored in a warm, wet place. It got very wet. It has a lot of water damage. Uh, And it's completely stuck together. We
1: cannot pull it apart. We have tried to unroll it. Every time the reel gets touched, it just falls apart. That's former Nitrateville radio guest George Williman, Nitrate Film Vault leader at the Library of Congress, talking about the physical risks of nitrate film in a 2016 documentary, Lost Emulsion, by New York-based independent filmmaker Glenn Andreev. Andreev set out to bring to life what we've all heard about how films on nitrate are at risk and how they can be lost forever. Now he's working on a new project called, you guessed it, Found Emulsion, which continues the story in the fast-evolving world of lost and found films. And he turned to GoFundMe to help raise funds to complete this new film. I spoke to Glenn Andreev from New York. Well, I think
3: what really uh, sparked that was, as a... You know, when i was younger i uh, like everybody else would get these uh, horror movie books and horror movie magazines and they talk about you know films like london after midnight and they show those really cool photographs of lon Chaney or the spanish language version of dracula la sangre
1: de dracula corre ya por las venas de la señorita Seward. seguirá
3: ella viviendo por toda la eternidad which look really cool and interesting. And then you're finding out that these films are lost, that there is no available copy. And you're like, well, why is that? I mean, you know, how could they just like lose a film? In the 90s, they found the um, print of the Spanish Dracula. We can all see it. And it's, you know, really fascinating to look at. But unfortunately, there's no London After Midnight. And that's just like one of God knows how many films. It was right after I attended a sort of like a... uh, I don't know if you call it a class or a meeting it's called mostly lost and it's held by the library of Congress and they talk about films that you know are lost but then there's they show these fragments of films that we try to identify you know there's no titles or there's no ownership to these fragments that they've they've got in their vaults and it's up to us who you know you know it's uh, film historians who try to pinpoint what that film is so it's like a Forensic, cinematic forensic file, just trying to get an identity for these films. So I just became very fascinated by the subject, and I just thought it'd make a uh, really good documentary.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I and mean, you talk to a lot of the people who are involved with preserving and saving films. How did you connect with that network? I assume Mostly Lost is part of the answer.
3: Yeah, well, Mostly Lost. That's where I got to know a lot of the uh, people at the Library of Congress, like George Williman and Rob Stone. And then from, you know, then also people I've known in the past, like the co-director of the Cinema Arts Center, Dylan Skolnick, and uh, a historian there, Phil Harwood. And uh, from there, I was getting to meet people like Ben Modell, who I knew, I've known for a long time. But then I got to know people like Steve Massa, Hugh Neely, um, who's uh, working on the um, Theater Barra documentary. And so I just got to know more and more uh, historians.
1: What did you want the film to say or what would you how do you want audiences to react to it
3: well i didn't want to make a film that just catered to you know the film historians uh, i wanted to just let you know the average person know that you know there's this heritage that's uh, that's missing that's why in the beginning you know i sort of structured the film where uh, i take people through you know, the birth of film from, you know, the late 1890s and talk about, you know, all these different people that, you know, were very important to the development of uh, film as an art and a, and a business. And then uh, I just said, well, most of the stuff they worked on has gone.
1: Yeah, no, I thought it was interesting that, I mean... You hear the stories, but also, I mean, you get to see these things that you've always kind of heard. I mean, I, I've never handled nitrate, but now I've seen nitrate, you know, and what happens to it and things like that.
3: That mostly lost a terrific fil- uh, film restorer and historian from France, Serge Bromberg. He's up on stage and he holds up a strip of film and he says, everybody from the audience, this is a strip of the Laurel and Hardy film Swiss Miss. Yesterday, it made you laugh. It takes like a cigarette lighter and ignites the bottom of it. Today, it makes you cry. And it just goes up in like a half a second. It's gone. No trace of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's basically films were printed on a bomb (laughs) and nitrocellulose being an explosive material.
3: And the reason for that was, is that it was, you know, as as explained in the film, it's, you know, very durable material that, you know, you could really like mishandle it and it will not really break they figure this film had to go through how many projections in a theater a day and they may have showed the film for about a week so you know these films were getting beat up so you couldn't have something fragile go through the projector
1: all right so you finished that one in 2016 lost emulsion um what was the reaction to it
3: it was all very much favorable i mean from uh, you know, people who work in the industry, to um, people who, like I said, who had no real interest in film, they they really, you know, learn something about you know our history, you know our film history. And uh, I mean, you know, these are the people like say, well, when was sound movies came out? <laughs> and like, you know, like you know now, you know they learn and they learn that pretty much eighty five percent of you know the silent films that were made are are gone.
1: That was 2016, and now it's uh, six years later. Um, what's the story that you want to tell in Found Emulsion? I
3: think in Lost Emulsion, I you know it was just sort of like a intro, and I talk about you know the big studio films that are missing, such as the Theta Barra films, and that was done at the Fox Film Company. It's a you know major major studio uh, at the time, uh, and sort of a um, early 20th Century Fox and the uh, Lon films and other films that are, that are gone. But then I was thinking about some of the um, lesser known films um, such as the classroom films. So if anybody, uh, let's say over the age of 45, they can remember uh, going to uh, the school and walking into the classroom and right in the middle of the classroom is a 16 millimeter projector. They're like, oh, okay, we're not going to listen to anybody talk. We're going to watch a movie. And that was usually just, like, the cool thing. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, like I explained in Sound emotion, like, a, mo- a lot of these uh, films are really just talking heads. They were just, you know, the filmmaker just pointed a camera at some uh, scholar just talking away. But then some of them are using sort of, like, the Hollywood film language.
1: Your corona is most puzzling to us, Mr. Sun. Hmm. We know that it rotates with you. But at no two eclipses does it look just the same. It pulsates, changes shape, and at times extends out millions of miles. Why is that? Just one of the many things we still don't know about
3: the sun. They would find in like a uh, action film or a horror film to tell their story, and those are like really imaginative. And uh, it's really like a really fun, eye-opening peek into the 1950s and 60s. There, what happened uh, in probably around 81, all the schools were switching from film to video, video libraries. Uh, these films a lot of times just wound up in the dumpster. Like personally, I have a lot of films from Baroque, uh, college in New York from like the 1970s, but whoever, uh, had this before me, they just did not store these very well. And you know, you know, you see like a, a real, a film and it's like, let's say juvenile delinquency. And like, oh, that's really fascinating. Let's open it up and it's uh, stenching of vinegar and you're like, Oh, well, you know, so much for watching that, Um, you know, vinegar, you know, vinegar, of course, the uh, vinegar syndrome is the sign that the film is really starting to decay. And it's not really almost worth keeping. Trying to say that all films that are made have some sort of importance. And these could be, like I said, the classroom films, Uh, these could be like the, B movies made in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. You know, the, um, you know, Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake or (laughs) Death Curse of Tartu.
1: From beyond the grave comes blood freezing horror as an ancient curse brings paralyzing terror to all who know the terrible secret of the Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake.
3: I mean, since they're, they're kind of a, a mirror, you know, they're kind of a off-the-wall look into
1: you know 1950s. So, what state is uh, frozen emulsion in at this point? You're working on it.
3: I'm working on. It. In fact, it's on my editing screen right now. I'm trying to color correct a home movie from the 1950s, and that's another really fascinating uh, thing with home movies that uh, people are, you know, getting rid of items like let's say through an estate sale. And I know a couple of people have gone to estate sales and there'll be a box of film. They say, Well what's that? They said, you know, the owner will say, Do you want it? You know, five bucks. Like, you know, there's some people who actually don't really care all that much of what happens to it. Uh another thing I I uh talked about in uh, Lost emulsion and I mentioned in found emulsion that if uh you have these home movies of let's say your family from the forties or fifties and you get them transferred to digital or DVD or, you know, some other, you know, more modern medium, I do not throw that original film away. You know, you could lose that, that digital file or that DVD could become, you know, you know, damaged. And then you, you're stuck with no original. Hollywood would recreate suburbia on a soundstage, but the home movies, it's like, there's no, there's no makeup. There's no, you know, fake sex, this, this is the real thing uh, preserved on film. So home oh, movies are important. I even, uh, I haven't talked about some of like the stag films, the way, you know, the way men were looking at, let's say pornography in the thirties or forties in this, like this really strange, almost like comic way.
1: Where do such films wind up? Um, you know, I suppose you always hear of like, they'd be shown at like parties at the American Legion or whatever. From there, how do they get, sa- you know, how do they exist to get saved many years later?
3: I think what happens is that, um, you know, some, somebody's owning the films there's, you know, one individual. And very often I hear what happens is like when that person passes away and, you know, the, let's say the surviving, you know, surviving children are going through, you know, his organizing his uh, stuff. They find this box hidden behind something else. (laughs) Yeah, and like, what's that? And sometimes these are these are saved. Yeah, I've known of that personally happening just like happening like a few times. You know, people know. Like, uh, I work with film in the St. Glenn. Do you know what this is? And I'm like, wow.
1: (laughs) 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 Yeah. So you you did a GoFundMe for this. Uh, is that a risk with GoFundMe saying that you're, you know, preserving the legacy of stag films or anything like that? Oh, uh, it well, just kind of like,
3: I uh, hope you know, like the administrators of GoFundMe isn't aren't listening. I just sort of, I don't even know if I mentioned that in the GoFundMe okay. campaign. I just, I guess you just say all types of films.
1: Yeah. <laughs> or even say forbidden films. That's, that, that's a code language that uh, film buffs will understand there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when do you think found emulsion will be finished?
3: I would say probably, um, early February. I oh, okay. uh, just try to get one more interview. I just, you know, I'm finding like little things I have to like tweak in the narration and, uh, uh, just some extra clips I have to get, but it, it's, it's coming along. Um, it's at a sort of, uh, Slightly bumpy history because I started it right before Christmas uh, 2019.
1: Uh, <laughs> I know where this is going.
3: Yes, exactly. So it's like, okay, well, March, well, no, I don't think I'm going to be going cross country to do any interviews uh, yet. So it sort of laid in the back for a while. Uh, and then I was like looking at the material and said, you know what, what I have right now, I can make a really dynamic mini feature meaning something that's about 35 40 minutes long and you know get the you know point across you know beautifully i just had to get a few more interviews and i've been basically since about early december of 2021 been doing that um just uh, polishing the you know polishing everything up so it's it's very close to uh very close to completion
1: so if someone contributes to the uh to the gofundme what are they supporting specifically
3: uh they're supporting. I guess the uh, you know the completion of you know, of the film. Um, uh, you know, so that's uh, getting out there and just you know whatever post production costs there are. Just basically, you know, like I said, getting it you know getting it finished. There's some audio sweetening I definitely have to do. Uh, uh, there's a couple of uh, film clips I uh, use that probably are the only might be the only print available of some of these films that are uh, close to eighty years old. And uh, so, you know, just like I said, just like I said, the post-production stuff, the very important stuff that's at the tail end uh, found emulsion. I'm just going to make available, you know, for free uh, right now. Lost emulsion is available on Vimeo, but on Vimeo on demand where, you know, there's a fee to watch the film. But for people listening to this podcast, if you use the promo code, Carrie Grant is the name of this extra <laughs> who kind of. Dabbled in films in the 1930s. You use his name in lower caps. That's the promo code. You can see Lost Emulsion for free.
1: Lost Emulsion is available to rant on Vimeo. Links for that and for the GoFundMe for Found Emulsion will be in the show post at nitreville.com. Thanks to my guests, Dana Stevens, Ferent Smith-Neme, and Glenn Andreev, and Shita Carr. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Don't miss an episode, subscribe at the podcast app of your choice, and leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks.